Hey, good morning. This is uh, Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA, and I want to welcome you to another edition of the CSA Security Leaders Podcast. As you know, with this series, we're trying to bring a human face to security leadership, regardless of industry or geography or any particular vertical, uh, really trying to look at the career path choices made by security leaders today across the spectrum. And today, I'm very excited to in- invite my guest, Brad Rayford. So, Brad, welcome to the show. Why don't you just give a little uh, shout out about what uh, what you do today, and then we'll kind of peel back the onion layer to where things uh, started for you. Great. Uh, thanks, Derek. It's great to be here this morning. Uh, my name is Brad Rayford. I'm a director in our cybersecurity services practice at KPMG. My primary focus is split, <laughs> as odd as that is to say, having a primary focus split uh, with a concentration in operational technology, ICS, SCADA, uh, and now the burgeoning world of industrial Internet of Things, the Internet of Everything, and how impacts of 5G will alter the course of, of manufacturing and, and production systems. Okay, awesome. Well, welcome to the show. Let's just go back. Everybody has a backstory. And so where did you, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Uh, so I grew up primarily in Texas. Uh, I was born in Galveston. My family moved around between Austin and Houston. But I spent the bulk of my childhood in Saudi Arabia. My dad was, uh, worked for Ramco twice. Uh, he worked for a total of 10 years for Aramco, uh, five before my brother and I were born, and then five uh, when I was in grade school. So I spent all of elementary school over in Saudi Arabia on the uh, eastern side of the peninsula. I had a fantastic time over there, uh, and then I came back to Houston. Oh, awesome. Where in this journey does technology get introduced? If you know, Is it early or is it later for you? Uh, so some of my earliest memories are my dad. I would not say my dad is a techno- technologically inclined person. But he was never afraid to buy technology. So growing up in our house, I was maybe four or five at the time. I remember having both an IBM and a Macintosh 2. And no matter what the technology was, my dad always wanted to have what, it, what was new, what was hot, so he could try it for himself. Uh, so he was always a very early adopter. And I remember wrecking, wrecking B uh, floppy disks you know, by spinning them on my finger as a kid, not knowing that I was damaging the magnetic uh, disk inside. But just being exposed that early, growing up in Saudi Arabia, uh, we were late to the internet game in the early 90s. Uh, I remember my dad coming home with the very first 14.4 modem. We plugged it in and we could get onto, onto user forums and read jokes. And my dad had this book of, of uh, Aggie jokes that he would post online in the forums. Uh, and I thought it was the coolest thing. And so that's really where my introduction to technology came from. Uh, and it just grew from there. Uh, my, brother, my, my, my brother's older. He is a software developer, and so he's always been about technology. Uh, He's one of the rare people who, from an early age, knew what he wanted to do and has never once deviated from that path. So we got into building computers when I was 10, 11 years old. Uh, We designed our our home network ourselves at the bright young ages of 13 and 15 and just really had fun with it. Awesome. So what do you uh, decide to do after uh, high school? After high school, I went to college. I went, did my undergrad at Texas A&M University. Uh, I was a student athlete on the men's swimming and diving team. Uh, my wife, or at the time my girlfriend, then fiance, uh, and now my wife, was on the women's swimming and diving team. Uh, we, awesome. both, we met in high school, oddly enough. We went to rival high schools, uh, but we swam for the same club team uh, in high school. So we were enemies during the day, but friends at night. And then I went and did my master's at Johns Hopkins uh, in computer engineering. 
What was your uh, your distance your your swim uh, your your event? I, I I was a swimmer as well. Uh, my dad was the swim coach. I grew up doing that year round. What did you swim? I was a sprinter, so I focused in the fifty free, hundred free, and hundred fly, and that was about where I topped out. <laughs> I I remember kind of despising you guys who were oriented towards sprinting. I was a distance swimmer, and uh, you guys were out of the pool. We were still doing you know five thousand, six thousand more yards on top of the day. I'm like, dang, I wish I had those fast twitch muscles. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's- it's an odd, it's an odd dynamic between sprinters and distance. There's always a little bit of jealousy on both sides. You know, there's, I can't run. I have no endurance when it comes to running or even long distance, anything. And so I was always envious of people who could go out and run for hours and that hasn't changed, but I know all of my distance friends are like, why are they done already? Did they really <laughs> get in a workout? Yep. That's an age old, age old thing, I think. All right. So, um, uh, what uh, during uh, college? I, you, what did you say you, your degree was in? Uh, I did mine in computer information systems. Okay. Any cybersecurity exposure yet, or is it traditional kind of IT related stuff? Uh, so by that point, I had done some ind- independent study in high school and first few years of college on my own. Um, when I was in high school, my brother was three grades ahead of me, so he was a senior and I was a freshman, and that was when we got high speed internet. And we started, we also got an Xbox. And so we started modding the Xbox. And with that came wanting to download ROMs of Xbox games. Uh, and so we, we used uh, the server of an organization that I won't name, but it sends spaceships into orbit. We found an external server of theirs that we could bounce our network traffic off and increase our bandwidth. <laughs> and so that was, you know, we thought it was a really cool technology loophole that we had found uh, until we got a very gently worded email or a letter in the mail asking us to not do that anymore. Uh, And so that kind of opened our eyes to, oh, oh, people can see what you do on the internet. And that was when security was really starting to become a a more broad or uh, broadly spoken of topic. Uh, And so then we got into talks of firewalls and how do you mask and VPN and do all this stuff. So my exposure came from some hands-on experience you know, we'll classify it under experience. Uh, and then in college, it, it really became something I just wanted to learn more about, uh, coupled with technology. Uh, later in my in college career, I did take some cyber-specific courses, but I've always viewed cyber more as a lens through which to digest technology. Talk, talk about that. What do you mean by that? So when I, when I talk with other people in, in, in the cyberspace, some of them are very knowledgeable about cyber products, right? They know platforms, they know, let's identity and access management. They know all about the tooling and how to provision and how to set up and and deploy those things. But their broad IT or technology experience is limited in scope. And I've always found that I I never really wanted to pursue cyber as anything more than a hobby, but my brain is wired so that when I consume information, I deconstruct it in my head and find flaws. And so whether it be somebody explaining a, a technology stack or a process, probably a little bit of the engineer brain in me. I deconstruct what's being said or what's being presented, and I look for ways that it can be broken. And I think that's kind of just how I, how I filter everything. And so when I'm understanding and learning, that gets a cyber spin on it, which previously I just not really paid attention to as anything specific. It was just the way I, I consumed information. But now it's, I, I see that it's very pointed at a cyber spin. And you know, if you think about people now, maybe earlier in their career, and focusing or specializing in cybersecurity is an you know is an option. 
but it's interesting in light of your, you know, your comments about looking at things, you know, holistically, what choices do you think people should consider, you know, consider doing um, in that kind of early phase So maybe education choice or just post-education choice? Is there an experience set that you think people should have? Because people are asking that a lot. I mean, it's part of the purpose of this series is to try to get some of you that have gone through your, your career journey and people, you know, if you could go back, you know, to that earlier time period, what choice people might make. Obviously, there's some new choices that are available today that you know weren't available to you, but that, that are available now. As I've taken various trainings, cybersecurity-focused trainings, be it CEH training or any other type of pen test training or hacker training, there's always that introductory module of thinking like an attacker. And the, the premise of the module, I understand the premise, but the title of it always makes me giggle a little because as somebody who's been on that side of the table as the attacker... I'm thinking, how do I think like a developer or an architect or an engineer, right? That's the way an attacker thinks. So by, with the, when people say, oh, I need to learn to think like an attacker, they're actually making the process harder. It's what, it's what my five-year-old son would call a shortcut that's actually longer than the shortcut or longer than the, the original path. I always like to ask new hires or, or people who are interested in, in the technology space a very simple question. Can you tell me the difference between a firewall, a router, a switch, and a hub? Right, which for me, when it comes to IT and talking about cyber, that's a, a pretty good level set. You, have, you need to know what networking devices are before you really can talk about what does security mean? Right? How do we apply layers of security even at the highest network layer? Uh, and when, when I see individuals struggle with what a router does versus a switch versus a switch and a hub, it really pains me because then I see on their resume that they've got, you know, they're really great in crypto and they know access controls and advanced logical access systems. I'm like, but you're missing the foundations, mm -hmm. right? Think like an engineer, think like an architect, somebody who's building, because that's going to show you where the flaws and weak points are. I think that's one of the moments I'm always looking for in these. There's a little uh, nugget that we should dig fully out. So this concept of really understanding the foundational elements uh, no matter what you end up doing or the specialty direction you might go in and before you even get into industrial control systems, any of those future choices, you're saying, hey, understand understand the foundational elements that this is all based on. Right. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a huge opportunity for people that are interested in cyber. I'm going to use the term generalist, which generally has a, a negative connotation. But in cyber, we don't have a lot of generalists and we need more. We need people who can talk about multiple components in a technology stack be it application layer or the, the endpoint or the server or the database or cloud and AI and network and be able to take security principles and apply it across everything, right? Very rarely, unless you're a SOC analyst or have a very specific role within a company on, on a team, you don't normally get to focus on one silo only, right? There's, there's implications and upstream and downstream effects to every decision that somebody makes regarding cyber and technology, so by being able to step back and understand the conversations around you that may not be in your sphere of influence, but have upstream and downstream impacts, you understand better why certain technology practices exist and how they can be improved uh, and, or what their limitations might be. Yep. Makes, makes total sense. So uh, as you're emerging from college, what are the career options and what, what are the choices you make uh, you know, first? So out of college, I, uh, I had taken a job with a uh, boutique consulting firm, uh, and that was in 2009-ish, 2010. And that was right when you know, the housing market bubble had popped. Being in Houston, we were fairly isolated until 2010. 
And that's when Houston started to feel the effects of, of that economic crisis. And so the job I had taken with the consulting firm uh, got put on hold for a year and a half. It didn't get canceled, which was a huge benefit. So I got to keep my signing bonus. Uh, but I, I was then stuck without a job for a year and a half. Uh, so I wanted to give back to the communities that had given me so much growing up. So I became a, a coach for swimming uh, with my local club team. Uh, and I started working with uh, the school district, my, my local school district. I worked as a paraeducator in the special needs department uh, with behavioral and occupational uh, needs students. Wow. And that was, uh, I look back fondly on those times. It, it had nothing to do with technology. I didn't touch a keyboard all day on any given day. But the relationships that I, I made with the students and my swimmers, I still get notes and updates from parents and from swimmers themselves as they either go off to college, as they graduate, get jobs, get married, uh, or as they work their way into uh, the workforce. And it's, it's really great to see, uh, I'll use the term legacy, my legacy, even though it's not mine, uh, but having a small hand in touching that many lives, it was really rewarding. Oh yeah, that's awesome. I did not know that about that, about your, your story. I have some, some different chapters at different phases of my life, working with people, a variety of different disability backgrounds. And my most recent one is I, I'm a scuba instructor, which is my side passion. And I just got certified in January to teach um, teach uh, people with the various levels of disability uh, to, to dive. It, it was an amazing process to go through the training. And I'm really looking forward to working with some of my first students who underwater can achieve amazing feats. I mean, some of them, you know, are like, hey, I can be as good a diver as anybody else. Weightlessness is the goal underwater. So, you know, <laughs> you can be missing, uh, you know, missing limbs and things like that and still be an extraordinary diver and obviously experience uh, uh, the underwater world. And so we've learned all the techniques to do adaptive, you know, essentially dive differently. And I can't wait to apply it. Okay, well, let's talk about what's next in the career path. Where where does cybersecurity come in? And then also, uh, where does the, the industrial part of this come in? Um, obviously, uh, During that time, I was working with the school district and as a swim instructor or swim coach. My wife encouraged me to go back to career fairs at, at Texas A&M. So I was kind of, I was reluctant to do it. You know, being a, an already graduated student, having to put back on the suit and tie, go to career fairs, do resume drops. But she gave me some advice. So my wife, by trade, is an accountant. Um, and she came out of college and did external audit for one of the big four uh, and said, hey, given what's going on in the, uh, in the economics, why don't you look at not a boutique firm, right? Just interview with the big four as well as some industry partners and see if there's something that you like. If not, you know, you still have your job at this other firm that that's there waiting for you. There's no harm in it. So I went back, uh, put on the, the suit and tie, the shiny shoes, went to the, the career fairs and met some really great companies and, and went through some really awesome interview processes. Found uh, KPMG on my short list, uh, which was not one I had ever entertained, you know, being a big four known for accounting and audit and wasn't something that I was, I really understood. But talking with one of the partners, uh, Sean Lafferty, he explained what, what our advisory practice did uh, and what the, the different roles and, and types of projects we do that are not audit or tax. So seeing that and understanding how big uh, the advisory or consulting practice is in a company like KPMG was staggering. Uh, and it had the, the attractive qualities of... Uh, 
unpredictability during an unstable time, opportunities for growth, exposure to lots of industries, lots of technologies, lots of peers and colleagues, both in my local office in the country and around the world that we, we coordinate. So it's a really great way to network. We market ourselves as a great place to start your career. Uh, and I've, that's a very true statement, but it's not the full statement, right? I, I started my career at KPMG and I still find that I like growing my career at KPMG. Uh, so it, it felt like home um, and that's where I ended up. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you mentioned that because that also I think is, is part of the, you know, the goal of the series. You know, what do I, what do I do first? Where, you know, where, where can I begin? How can I begin? Can you talk a little bit about what prerequisites do you guys look for? What does KPMG want to have somebody already have in place? Because that's common for our entry level members. Uh, they're, they're coming out of the military or coming out of school and saying, you know, where do I go next? What do they have to have already behind them before they could maybe come and join a team like yours? Uh, so for our team, depending on, on the candidate, right? The only thing that we really require is a college degree. Right, that's the that's the the standard that we set. As we, as long as they've got a college degree, meaning they've committed themselves to a career, an education path uh, that formalizes in a with a set curriculum, then we are open to the opportunity. Right, everyone brings different experiences to the table, be they academic or uh, from life. So what what I look for when I meet candidates or read resumes or talk with our recruiters is I want to see somewhere in that resume that cyber or technology is a passion. And it doesn't have to be in your course load. Uh, I admit I wasn't the most passionate about all of the courses I took in undergrad and grad school. My hobbies and interests are, are what really set me apart. I was active. I had active research projects that I was doing on my own on PKI, pu uh, public key infrastructure. I was interested in that and its deployments and, and different models for different scales of companies, including remote and uh, multinational companies. And that's something that is not very common. You know, we, in most college students, they have their academic course load and maybe a few organizations and extracurriculars, uh, but they're not pointed at cyber or technology, right? Maybe they're in Greek life. Maybe they're in a business fraternity. Uh, maybe they're involved in some other councils or other activities, which are all great, but it doesn't tell me why cyber is what you, is what you care about. So that's where I, I look. What, what tells me that you care about cyber? I'm curious, can you give an example or two of things you've seen that fit in that category? Sure. Uh, so in almost every in almost every IT type curriculum, there's always a, a group project or a capstone project where you have to interface with an organization on campus and design some type of system for them. And so it's a very open, open topic and it, you're free to take it in whatever direction you and the, and the sponsoring organization uh, want. So there's always, there's a chance to say, well, you have a, you know, the project I did was with an organization that had a paper-based filing system. Um, they were the government policies and procedures working group. Um, and they were looking to transition to a, a, an electronic filing system. And so as part of our requirements and use cases, I injected security use cases. You know, it's not enough just to be able to scan the documents and have access with metadata. Uh, and have all that stuff available, but it was how do we secure and do document privileges and and look at things that, from that lens as well as the operational operational needs. So there are ways in academic in academia uh, to involve security even in a non security focused uh, project. Some of the other things that I really like to ask uh, are what people's personal research projects are. 
And at any given time, I probably have two to four independent research projects that I'm reading about or, or putting thought into. Uh, some of them are applicable to what I do for my day-to-day, -day, and some of them are just purely theoretical uh, or something that I find highly interesting. And so when, if people, if candidates are able to vocalize and articulate what it is that they do in their free time, that lets me know if it's really something they care about or if it's something that they do because it's what their teacher put in front of them. And it doesn't have to be a big independent project. It can be a small aspect of, of something, just anything that shows uh, that it's it, given free time, that it's a choice you make. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So let's go back. Uh, so you're working for KPMG. Um, I'm assuming at that point it is traditional uh, IT cybersecurity. Where does industrial control systems or operating technology, whatever term you, you want to use and define, where does that come into view? Probably about my second or third project in. So let's say about six months into my career at KPMG and the manager I was working with said, okay, you've done one financial audit support project, um, doing the, the IT controls for a financial audit, uh, working with our external audit team. Now let's put you on, a, on an advisory, on a consulting engagement. And it was with a power generation company. And during my first week on the, on the engagement, we went and walked the power plant. And we got to climb up to the top of uh, the gas turbine and the steam turbine stacks. And we got to see all of the different components and where how everything was laid out. And my dad working in oil and gas growing up, I got to go to plants, but I was too young to really take it all in. And they definitely didn't let us out of the admin building. So this was my first time walking around and being around this enormous equipment and seeing that this is how our power is made. This is how things arrive from point A to point B. This is where the electricity goes out. And it was, it was fascinating just from the, the mechanical side. And then the, the engagement itself was related to OT, was related to the, the technology and the securing of the control systems. So it's kind of a, a twofer. Uh, that's where it started, and that's what it's been since. So it just exposure on the one client engagement ends up creating this path. I mean, is this how much of a focus area is this for you versus traditional cybersecurity? Are you 100% on Again, the larger bundle of IoT and IoT and OT, or you're like, no, I also do traditional cyber as well. I think that's a lot of people looking at this mishmash of are we are people purists? Are they specializing? Are they cross-functional? How would you describe yourself in that way? I would describe myself lovingly as a unicorn. I I probably overcommit myself. If I were to scale everything and, and normalize at 100%, I'd probably spend about 80% of my time on OT-related endeavors. The way I view OT and the way I've, I've positioned our OT practice within, within KPMG is not as a vertical underneath our IT consulting, but as a horizontal parallel to IT, right? So if there's any IT type consulting project that exists, there is a mirrored type project in the OT space. So it is just as wide and deep as any IT consulting service. Uh, and so that means I have to balance a lot, a lot of spinning plates. So just within the realm of OT, I'm balancing multiple industries, multiple components of the OT stack, and all of the different consulting services that we offer for OT, be they strategy or assessment-based or transformation. Um, outside of that, uh, I, I have ha always had a passion for pen testing, and so I spend the remaining 20% of my focus on uh, pen testing work, as well as a few side select side projects that are 
where my own personal interests align with the engagement outcomes. Awesome. A theme that I'm also uh, finding arises, and so I'm kind of teasing it out in every one of these discussions, is around mentorship. Any anybody in your during your career journey uh, in the past or today uh, provide any any value to you in in the form of uh, mentorship? I've had three really stellar mentors. Um, one was the engagement manager that I, I spoke about just a few minutes ago. Uh, he he opened my eyes to what OT was. Uh, it was new. It was a new practice to KPMG. It was a service line that we were really trying to get into. And uh, I got lucky enough to get in his good graces. I say that my, uh, my skills aligned with what his vision was. Um, and he and I got along very well. Uh, so we made a good team. Uh, and he brought me into his world of this is what we're trying to build. This is how we're going to go do it. Um, so he's, he was a, a really good friend, uh, more so than he was a, a boss or a, a somebody high in a hierarchy. Uh, and we, he took that into the teams that we were on, and it was very collaborative. Uh, we were all learning uh, at the same time. My next uh, two mentors, I, I worked with them at the same time and probably for about the past seven years almost exclusively, uh, and they each provided me something different. Um, one is uh, the mysterious Gavin Mead. Uh, he's uh, <laughs> he's an enigma, uh, but he's he really mentored me in, in how to remain passionate about cyber and make that passion relevant outside of cyber conversations. So more and more, we're seeing cyber conversations happen at the board level, uh, at the within audit committees, and the you can't use cyber terms or you shouldn't use cyber terms with that audience, right? We have our own jargon. We have our own taxonomy. We understand and talk about risk in a way that's different than everybody else. Right? We talk about cyber risk, but broadly, risk is applicable to financial, to reputational, to enterprise. So he taught me how to transform and translate that, my passion and my knowledge about cyber, into something that was digestible by non-technical, non-cyber folks at various levels of an organization. And he also took that internally to our people. There, we've gone through a few internal campaigns where we try, as part of our internal investment in our cyber practice, of educating other advisory and consulting personnel on what it is we do and how we can be of service to their engagements and how they might fold into our engagements to create a better service portfolio. Uh, and so taking that passion and just never, never relenting and never taking no as the answer. And uh, my third mentor, uh, Dietz Ellis, a very dear friend of mine. He and I worked side by side uh, for six, seven years, almost straight. Uh, and he really helped me grow my career. Uh, it gave me exposure, not just to people and, and projects, but to opportunities. Uh, he was never withholding with his knowledge and experience. If there was something that I wanted to learn about a project or part of our engagement life cycle or building relationships with clients, he was willing to teach me and then step out of the way so I could try it. And that, that takes a lot of trust, right? To remove yourself and say, yeah, this is your first time trying this new, this new skill out, but go ahead. Let's see what happens. And that was, uh, it was touching, but it also, <laughs> it was also stressful, right? Because there's always that undercurrent of try it, but don't fail too bad. You know, that is an awesome share, Brad. I have a question I often ask, you know, how, how important has good colleagues, have good colleagues been to, you know, to your success? And that's a great example, you know, right there that is is awesome. And I think that's a theme that's really important. 
especially for people who aren't yet part of the, you know, part of the ecosystem or part of a company's ecosystem and may feel they're, you know, operating alone, trying to enter the space. But there is a lot of, uh, it's been my experience, I think the whole CSA organizations about, you know, we we can help each other. And there is a lot of that. It's heartwarming to hear, you know, specifically how that how that worked for you in KPMG and the fact that I know two of the three uh, <laughs> that you mentioned uh, personally. That's great. So any challenges uh, along your career path and how did you overcome those? Anything pop to mind in that category? No, I mean, I think my career has been smooth right from the get-go. No hurdles, no problems, no issues. And then, you know, then I wake up uh, and realize that every day is is a challenge sometimes. But for me, the the biggest challenges that I've had, it's it's happened twice now, is the cyclical nature of employee turnover, right? So I used to have a very close group of, of friends in Houston. We all worked together. We did pen tests together. We did OT work together. Uh, and then as we got more experienced and we started looking outside of, of Houston and our local office needs, we kind of got broken up. You know, we needed people out in California. We needed some work done on the East Coast. And uh, so we got separated. And that kind of drove a, I don't want to say a wedge, but it made it harder for us to connect uh, and left us feeling a little bit unjoined, unmoored. Uh, the end result being that several of those people ended up leaving the firm. Uh, they now work together at a, at a different firm. But for those of us that stayed, it was uh, you know, that, that wave of grief of these people that I've, I've spent time and my friends are now gone. Not only are they gone, but they're at a competitor. So I can't, we can't talk shop. Um, and for, yeah. for some, some levels, you know, we can't talk at all. Uh, so as not to violate or risk violating any non-competes. So it, it, that that was always a painful experience, and that's happened twice. Yep. Well, good good chair. I I recognize that that story too as playing out in industries, um, losing losing close colleagues. Um, if you could go back uh, to the beginning, to um, just getting ready to get out of school, um, and I think this could apply to something just stepping out of the military or something else. It doesn't have to be just getting out of college or. or or graduate school, but just go back to your younger self and, and any kind of couple of words of wisdom you would uh, we would share with your younger self. Uh, so I, I was talking about this with my wife this morning on our walk, and she and I both kind of had uh, similar ideas, but in very different contexts. So her her advice was never be afraid to say yes. Be open to opportunities, right? If somebody comes along and asks, hey, can you do this? Do you want to try to do this? Say yes. Take that. Seize it. And uh, I. I I get that point of view and it resonates really well, but as a consultant, I, I get a lot of asks every day, uh, both externally and internally, right? There's, we're a close knit community and we have trusted resources that we go to for certain things based on knowledge or experience. And so there's a lot of times that I actually have to say no. Uh, and that's a really hard thing. I think as a, especially it's hard for me now at my level in my career, I, it, when, it was even harder when I was fresh out of college, learning not just to say no, but how to, how to understand and comprehend when I should say no. Uh, and then obviously the right ways to communicate no so that it's, uh, uh, there's an understanding of I'm saying no, but what I mean is I don't have the ability right now or the capacity or the bandwidth or, or whatever the reason is behind it so that it's not a closed door. You're touching on this right now, and you were earlier as well. And I think it's 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 so germane to any level of any progression that anybody wants to make. Communication. You're mm-hmm. you're you're referencing this. It does probably doesn't matter what business someone's in. And my personal belief, and I, I suspect you share it, is 
that learning how to communicate to a variety of audiences, people that work for you, people you work with, people that you work for, uh, all the way up to, to boards. And I've heard some of those themes come out before. It's like we need to translate. We need to communicate in a certain way. And that, I think, is sometimes tough for various kinds of practitioners and engineers to take on board, uh, to, to necessarily think, put the hat on the person they're talking to say, Ooh, how would they need to be communicated to? And it seems like that's a theme that's played out uh, in, your, in your own experience. Yeah, I would say technical knowledge aside, probably the, the single greatest skill that somebody can have is communication, be it written or verbal. Uh, if, you, if you're unable to articulate your ideas and get somebody else to understand them, then they're not worth anything. Right? If you are the only person who understands what you're talking about, that's the end of the line. So learning how to not just get words out of your head and onto a piece of paper or into a presentation or into a speech, but to understand who the audience is, how they need to hear things to understand it the way you do. Uh, my wife always talks with her teams, and then after a conference call, she'll say, you know, I can, I can explain it to them, but I can't understand it for them. And that's a very true statement, which I always follow up with, but that's your job is to help them understand it. Now, your job is not just to explain it to them. You have to explain it to them in a way that they can understand it. And yeah. then she gives a scowl and is like, why did I even say anything to you? <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, what are you excited about uh, as far as the future? So I'm excited about some of our next wave of services. We recently spun up our, our global IoT Cyber Nexus group. Um, which has a focus on our next-gen service set for IoT. And we've got – out, and we call it the Cyber Nexus, but we're actually incorporating groups outside of cyber. So we've got some of our network architects, uh, major projects advisory, and some of our other groups like that that are participating that bring a different flavor and focus uh, into our world of security. Uh, so one of the areas that we're really diving deep on uh, is how 5G is going to impact IoT what that means, not just from the amount of bandwidth available, but also to the types of products that, that vendors are going to be selling and what, what the implications are for your IT, uh, your IT groups and your security strategies. Yep. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Yeah, we, we are, we're just at the beginnings of, of major change and transformation, in my, uh, you know, in my opinion. And uh, you're, you're, those are some exciting areas that you're, uh, that you're looking at. Okay, well, let's see what else. Anything else you want to share with, with anybody in the, you know, in the CSA space, you know, around the industry and uh, things that you think you know people should be taking a look at? Maybe, maybe as a good segue from what we were just talking about, you know, where you see the horizon, like this is going to be exciting. If you want to be on the cutting edge or in a growth area, let's say, you might want to take a look at this, you know, at this area and how somebody might go about getting into that area. Oh. Um, so, I mean, the, the best way to do that is to stay abreast of what's happening in technology as a whole, right? This goes back to our conversation about being a generalist, right? Keeping your eyes peeled for everything and then learning to filter what you care about and what might be uh, of importance to your client base or your customer base. So if, you know, looking purely from a cyber lens, 5G doesn't pop up very often, right? We're focused on, especially in the OT world, we're focused on perimeters, focused on that, that perimeter security and then, and then adding in layers and, and bridging IT, OT security operations. 5G is a purely operational piece for technology, right? It, it has security implications, but it's not a security-driven advancement. So un, unless you can pick your head up and scan the horizon for things that are 
technology related, but not cyber focused, uh, you're going to miss out on some of those. And those are, those are the exciting pieces right now. It, there's a lot of, a lot of work to be done in the space, a lot of re- fundamental work, if we're being honest. Uh, and we're going to see that multiply. Uh, we'll take something as simple as asset and asset inventories, right? The bane of every company's existence is having a complete and accurate asset inventory and maintaining that, right? Excel isn't cutting it anymore <laughs> for a lot of, a lot of organizations. Uh, but OT, it makes it really hard because how do you scan and detect devices that don't use IP, right? How are you getting down to the PLCs and, and, uh, and field devices when you don't have a connect, uh, any type of routable connectivity out there? And so we're already struggling with sites that have five, ten thousand 10,000 devices. What are we going to do when something like 5G comes in and now we've got 50,000 devices, 50,000 sensors that not just connect to your network, but have some type of cellular backhaul that go to a cloud or reroute through your, your enterprise network so they can get real-time telemetry for business analytics, right? Now you've just Swiss cheesed your perimeter that you spent so long securing and hardening, uh, and you've, you know, you've increased your asset inventory problem by orders of magnitude. Uh, so I think there's, there's room and, and ways to, to prepare for that. Uh, but unless you're keeping abreast of those changes in the, in the upcoming technology set, it's easy to get bogged down in, in everything else. Okay. Well, one last comment. How do you stay abreast of new things? What is your method? My, my, my best method. So I have, I have three little kids, right? So a lot of the time in the evenings and mornings that I used to spend to reading blogs and, and catching up on news and, and product announcements is gone. It's filled with daddy. I want cereal, but no, I also want pancakes and I'm tired. <laughs> so I've, I've had to find ways to optimize and I've found outsourcing that to, to my younger colleagues works really well. Ones that are right out of college or within the first three, four, five years of their career, their work-life balance is different than mine. And they're uh, having conversations and they're coming out with a fresher knowledge set from, from uh, the academic world than I am. And so their exposure to certain topics uh, is broader. And so by talking with them and asking them what they're seeing, and, and that gives me some good signposts of where I can point my direction and, and, and set sail. Now, I temper that knowing that their understanding or the, their, their knowledge of the implications of what that means for a strategy or on a go-forward plan for a customer or a client, I, I take that with a grain of salt because that's my job. Right? My job is to figure out those things. But they help me figure out what things I, I should be looking into more. So kind of a focusing effect uh, yeah. amongst all the things you could pursue or consume information, a, a sort of a focusing with the time that you have then to consume that specific information. That's pretty cool. Right. All right. Now comes the time in the show when I like to ask the Pivot questionnaire. Anybody who knows me knows I've been a huge fan of Inside the Actors Studio, which ran for many, many decades. In fact, it's still running today. But the original host, James Lifton, has passed on uh, in the not too distant past and um, always loved his interviews with actors on the stage and part as part of his show. And he used at the end the same questionnaire called the Pivot questionnaire, which he borrowed from a French series years before that. So this goes back some decades. So we'll go through it and see what how this goes. Okay, Brad? All right. What is your favorite word? I think my favorite word is eclectic. What is your least favorite word? Mm. Moist, bulbous. Is it okay to have more than one? Gosh, there's a lot of words in yeah, English. That's great. It doesn't have any cosmic law of the universe. Yeah, it's okay. What turns you on creative, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, I like to watch people create things, be it in person or 
competition shows on TV, I, no matter what the competition is, I watch it. And that, that really inspires me to think about how I approach my work differently. Awesome. What turns you off? Drama. What is your favorite curse word, if you have one? I'm pretty, pretty kid-friendly with my curse words these days. I really like fiddlesticks. <laughs> one a lot. Yeah, in the age of COVID, we are sharing our offices often with, uh, with our little people. What sound or noise do you love? I love the giggles I get from my children. What sound or noise do you hate? Hearing somebody chew. I love your answers. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Do I have to have the skills in it? No. Surgery. I think surgery would be fantastic. I used to want to be a doctor in uh, one of my earlier days. I don't like blood, but I, I think surgery uh, would be something I'd like to try. All right. Well, if I need a bargain basement, you know, cheap surgery, maybe I'll call you up. Um, <laughs> if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, I think... I'd rather not hear him say anything, uh, but just take me in, in a big embrace. All right. Brad Rayford, Cybersecurity Director at KPMG, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Derek.